Some people are football fans, some people are baseball fans, basketball fans, soccer fans. Uh, I'm a SCOTUS fan, which is the Supreme Court of the United States. I'll explain. Uh, I really am, I'm like a geek about the Supreme Court, and this will go somewhere, I promise. Um, like, so growing up, I was good at like two things, music and talking, and more importantly, arguing. And the Supreme Court is like the gladiatorial zone of arguing. I don't know if you know that, but really smart people show up there and they argue their case in front of nine brilliant jurists. And you can actually listen to the oral arguments. There are like apps for the iPhone where you can listen to the debates. And I think that's fantastic because like I don't really get into football or a lot of other sports, but when it's SCOTUS time, I get like my bag of popcorn and I'm like just gonna listen to them spar verbally, right? I'm also like actually really enamored with the idea of like what happens at the court. And I know like our government isn't perfect. I know there's a lot that needs fixed these days. But I still can't get over the idea that at least in theory, even though we don't always live up to it, at least in theory, the idea that like, like everybody should be equal before the law and anybody can argue their case. And if you make it through the appeals, you can stand in front of the nine most powerful judges in America, regardless of who you are, and plead your innocence or plead your side of things. I just find that really compelling, especially having spent a lot of time in places around the world where there's no chance of that happening anytime soon. So like, I really, I really get into this stuff. I enjoy like, mapping the arguments and seeing how it happens. So a few years ago, when a friend of mine with some connections invited me while I was in DC to go to the court, I was just absolutely pumped. And he had a connection uh, through a clerk that works for one of, the, one, of the, one of the nine justices. And so we got in there with like, some VIP access, and we actually went and we attended the oral arguments in the court. And then we had some other stuff going on. So first, I bought a suit. And then I showed up, and, and so we get there, and it's this gorgeous, beautiful, sunny day, blue skies. Washington, D.C. is like just shining at her best. And we go to this special door for special people who have special access, and then we get like a bit of a tour of the court. I mean, we get to see parts of the courts that nobody's supposed to see. There's a special legal library in the Supreme Court building that's only for the justices and the clerks. So it's like a VIP book room, which is like a VIP space of the club for me, because I like books, but I don't really like clubs. And so we go see the library. And then we go up to the top floor of the building, and you may not know this, this is true, there's a basketball court on the top floor above the courtroom, like the floor above the courtroom where the arguments are had, and the basketball court's just for the justices and the clerks, and they call it, wait for it, the highest court in the land. <laughs> true story. There's a whole story about uh, oral arguments happening with eight of the nine justices seated, and one of the justices had recused himself from the case at hand because of conflict of interest. So he's upstairs playing basketball above the, above the courtroom. He's one of the justices, and it's, it's like disturbing the oral arguments that are happening. So one of the other justices sends a note through a clerk up to the justice, and he basically says back, read the Constitution. You can't fire me. I'm going to keep playing basketball. <laughs> So we hear these stories, and then they take us uh, into the actual chambers of one of the justices. I won't tell you which justice, but we're like literally sitting like in his office at his desk. He wasn't there, but we're just like hanging out, like there's a fireplace and a couch, and like this is where it happens, right? And the reason I'm getting excited about it is not just because I'm a geek, although that's true, uh, but because I have some very real sense that like in this room, in this building, there's a lot of power here, right? Like, there's, there's some action here. Like, things really matter that happen here, right? And the decisions that happen, like, they have consequences. Like, the, the powers here, the action is here, and the things that happen here, they actually emanate from here out into the world. And the things that happen here have a way of holding our world together or not, depending on whether the rulings are good or bad, right? 
Like I had a real sense of something close to the sacred there. And I don't mean to trivialize what we mean by sacred, but there was a real sense that something matters in this place, right? And curiously, uh, the thing is actually built to resemble a temple. That's the architect's intent, was to sort of inspire a kind of reverence for the law when you walked into that place. And I share all of that with you because um, though it's far removed in kind of a cheap analogy, it's one of the closer examples I actually have in my life to what it probably felt like for an ancient Israelite to approach the temple. And again, it's an analogy at best, right? I don't mean to equate the two, but there was something about like this place, this is where the power is, this is where the action is, and the things that happen here emanate from here, and they have a way of sort of holding the world together. I, th I think this is actually very much the experience uh, of an Israelite approaching the temple, that um, this is the center of everything. And, like it really matters, right? Like what happens here. And then the things that we do here as a community in our life before God, they kind of emanate out from this place. Now, the thing about an Israelite approaching the temple is they wouldn't just have a sense that things really matter here, this is where the action is. They would have noticed something else that we might miss because it's sort of buried in those old ancient texts that are sort of hard to read sometimes. But if you, if you had walked into the temple several thousand years ago and paid attention, you would have noticed something peculiar going on. First of all, you would have noticed what they called the sea, like S-E-A, like the ocean. Uh, it's a big, big metal vat with water in it. And you would have walked uh, past that, you would have noticed um, a couple of pillars. Uh, they named them Jacob and Boaz. These pillars uh, go up holding nothing. They're, they're not supporting a roof structure. It's almost as if they're supporting the sky. Of course, if you're an ancient person and you think of the world the way ancient people do, you have an idea that the sky is this sort of dome above us that's held up by, by ancient primordial pillars that we call the mountains. So you walk into the temple and you see these pillars holding up the sky and you see the sea. And then you walk indoors and you would see images of trees, arboreal imagery for the fancy word, but images of trees in that space there. And then you would look down uh, to the far end of that inner sanctum and you would see a curtain. But unlike our beautiful plain gray curtain here, you would notice there is embroidery on the curtain. And the thing embroidered on the curtain were stars, like a sky at night. If you were paying attention and you saw pillars holding up the sky and the sea and trees and the stars, you would realize the temple was actually built to be a reimagining of the universe or a microcosm of all reality. The temple is a place that you go to not just to commit your sacrifices, not just to fulfill your obligation, but the temple is a place that you walk into and the whole universe is being imagined but with a critical truth at the center of it. Because in the temple behind that curtain is the Holy of Holies. And it's there in the Holy of Holies where the Israelites know the presence of God to be uh, specially manifest. Which is to say that in the temple's imagining of the world, at the center of everything, it isn't just empty space. At the center of everything, it isn't just dark matter but at the center of everything is God. At the center of everything, at the center of your life, your bones, your body, your story, at the center of the seasons that turn the world, at the center of everything is God. I share all of this because um, we're talking about holiness, and this is our topic for Lent, and we've wanted to maybe 
find our way toward a sort of working definition of what that's going to mean for us. Holiness is a big word in the Bible. It matters in the Bible. And today, with that in mind, with the Holy of Holies and the presence of God there and a whole world reimagined with God at the center of everything, the working definition that I want to offer today is that holiness is something like being present to the presence of God. This is a working definition, by the way. There's lots of good definitions out there. Some people will say holiness is to be set apart. That goes right to the root of the word in the Hebrew. Some people will say that holiness is proximity to the otherness of God. That's actually in one of the commentaries. That's pretty strong. Some people will say that holiness is a theological word for beauty. Some people will say that holiness is describing God's perfection. There's a lot of different ways that we can try to get our hands around this mystery. But today, uh, I think this is going to help us if we talk about holiness as being present to the presence of God. Uh, the temple is where holiness gets played out for the Israelites. And there, with the presence of God at the center of everything, they learn to live their whole lives present to the presence of God. So think about how this works, right? Like maybe you've read about the sacrifices that happen in the Old Testament. Maybe you've wondered what all that's about. Well, for example, in the, the life of the Israelites, when something really good happens, like some wonderful thing breaks into your life, what do you do? Well, you go to the temple and you offer a sacrifice of gratitude, which it actually becomes a feast that you will eat with the, the priest and your family celebrating the kindness of God. But you bring it to the temple because the temple is where their imaginations are being fired with the reality of God's presence in the middle of everything so that you remember that that good thing that broke into your life, it wasn't just happenstance, it wasn't just circumstance, that it, it happened in a world with God at the center of everything who gives us every good thing, right? If you're an ancient Israelite and you just completely foul up, there's a, a break in your character, your integrity. You lie, you cheat, you steal. You just, you give way to the gravity that pulls us down to our worst selves. When that happens for these people, what do you do? You go to the altar, you make sacrifice there at the temple, reminding yourself because in, in that imagination of the universe, God is at the center of everything. And so these failures are not being played out in neutral territory. These failures are being played out in a world with God at the center of everything. And there's no break in God's character. There's no moment when God gives into the gravity that pulls the rest of us down to our worst demons. And so you bring sacrifice there. We could, we could go on and on, but I think one um, theologically grounded way of understanding that whole temple thing is that it's teaching the Israelites to be present to the presence of God always, in everything, in every moment of their lives. And we are here to think about being holy during this Lenten season, so we're here to think about being present to the presence of God. Let me turn back uh, to these Lenten practices that we talked about last week for a moment and see how this plays out. So we, we mentioned last week that during this season, as Jesus communities all around the world make their way toward Holy Week and Easter, many will take on prayer in special ways, fasting and almsgiving. Well, prayer is probably the most obvious one here, that prayer is a way of being present to the presence of God, right? Like bringing your attention, your mind, your body, your consciousness to some kind of uh, awareness that, that God is present. And so maybe you pray with words or maybe you don't. Maybe you pray with song or maybe you don't. Maybe you pray with images. Maybe you pray writing on a page. Maybe you pray with the scriptures open. Maybe you pray with your hands in the dirt as you garden or your hands in the bowl in the kitchen. But whatever you're doing, prayer would be a way of attending to the presence of God and being present to that. 
That one's kind of the easy one. But what about fasting? What about the idea of like giving something up? I mean, is this about like punishing ourselves? Is this about just like beating ourselves up? I don't think so. I think fasting too is a way of being present to the presence of God, especially when we give up something that is distracting us from the presence of God. Let's take one example. I know a lot of people who will do like a dry Lent. They won't drink during the Lenten season. And for many, that's like a really powerful way to remove something that's distracting them, right? Uh, there's a letter in the New Testament where Paul writes to a church and says, don't be drunk with wine, that'll ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see how he sets up like this thing that you consume and what it does to you. But then he talks about like, but there's this presence of God that's like right here for you, available in the here and now. And he seems to be saying like, be mindful of anything that's distracting you from the presence of God, that makes it harder for you to be present to the presence of God in your everyday life. So maybe for you, you'll go dry for Lent, or maybe it'll be like, no, Netflix, just to carve out a little bit of sacred quiet in your evening so that you can be present to how God has been present in your day. I don't know, but like fasting can be a powerful way of setting aside the things that make it hard for us to be present to the presence of God. Let's go back to the list. We have prayer. And we have uh, fasting, but then we also have almsgiving, which is that way of being generous toward others in need, right? Now, that can seem like a virtuous thing to do or a good thing to do, but I think it's also a way of being present to the presence of God, especially in our neighbors in need. Jesus tells this story in Matthew 25 where he talks about this great sorting, this great sifting, really a judgment, where God is going to distinguish between the people who... who Watch where I go with this. Who were present to the presence of God and those who weren't. But the way that they are present to God is peculiar because he says that you fed me when I was hungry and you visited me when I was in prison and you clothed me when I was naked. So you were being present to me. And they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. So it turns out that there's uh, the possibility that turning in generosity toward neighbors in need is actually a way of being present to the presence of God. That perhaps God is looking at you through the eyes of your brother or sister or neighbor when they don't have the things that they need to flourish. And that as you turn toward them, you're actually turning toward the presence of God in the world. And this would be a way of like making Lent a season of intentional holiness. This might not be the way that you're used to hearing this talked about, but I think this is like actually what's at stake, like what this could also be about. Now, um, like let's say we find ourselves turning to the presence of God, like somehow becoming aware of God, waking up to God, being intentional about God. Like what, what would you expect to find? Well, like one of the things that's really clear in the scriptures is that often when we wake up and pay attention, we become aware of the ways that we have lived below who we are in God. Right? That like, though we're called bearers of the image of God, we often don't look like God. We often don't live like God. Our character is often like less than God's, even though he's called us bearers of the image of God. So sometimes the the feeling that happens is um, a sense of like that we, that we need to return, like we sang about earlier. You might call that conviction. I would say like, what a gift if you ever find out that God is calling you back to who you are. Like if you're far from who you are and what you are here for, 
And rather than abandoning you to that path, God like speaks up and whispers to you and says, why don't you come back to who you are, man? Like, why don't you get back to what you were here for? Like, what a gift, right? But conviction is not the only thing that we find when God makes God's presence like, really known, right? So there's this moment in the book of Exodus where Moses seems to be far from who he is and what he's here for. Moses is the guy who's raised uh, in the Egyptian's household, even though he's an Israelite, so he already has this kind of multiple identity thing going on. And then he kills a man, so he's on the run. And then he finds himself tending the flocks of his father-in-law, who's a Midianite priest. So he's living this really, really complex, complicated identity where he's out there on the run. And then one day he just bumps into an awareness of the presence of God, because it says that he sees a bush that's burning and it's not burning up. And so he gives his attention to it. He becomes present to the presence of God that's showing up through this strange phenomenon there. The word holy shows up. God says, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. But then when, when Moses bumps into the presence of God, he discovers a compassion in God, like a revelation that God hears cries in the world. Because what this God says is, the people that you're a part of have been groaning in their slavery, and I want you to do something about it. You might discover, if you become present to the presence of God, that there's a compassion in God that'll overwhelm you. It might be compassion for you, or it might be compassion through you that wants to move through you towards some kind of hurt in the world. But maybe compassion will be the thing that you discover if you become present to the presence of God. Or maybe you will just discover an indiscriminate love. Uh, Jesus uses the word perfection to talk about God, but in strange ways. Remember I said earlier, perfection could be a way of talking about holiness, right? Well, Jesus has this thing in Matthew uh, chapter 5, I think it is, where he says, be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. That sort of rhymes with the scriptures that say, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy, right? Be perfect as God is perfect. But what is the perfection? What is the holiness that Jesus is describing here? Is it some kind of impossible moral standard that will beat you up and beat you down? Like, what is the perfection of God as it's described here? Well, let me go back just three verses where Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, like in this moment, be perfect as God is perfect, be holy as God is holy. The thing revealed is that God is indiscriminate in God's love, that God pours out blessing and meets the needs of the good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful. And so if you bump into the presence of God, if you become present to the presence of God, you might find yourself caught up in a kind of indiscriminate, overwhelming, break all the categories love. And I don't know who wouldn't want to be present to that. <laughs> Now, it might disrupt some things for you, but I don't know who wanted, wouldn't want to be present to that. Who, who wouldn't want to discover that the, at the center of everything, it's not just emptiness or dark matter or cold space, but at the center of everything is something like a holy fire that is love. It's been firing the atoms and the energies that have kept the universe going this far and have brought you to this place living and breathing with your feet on the ground that at the center of all that has been love. Who wouldn't want to be present to that? Now, I fear um, that some of us have suspected um, that the presence of God is not for us. I think some, um, maybe like belief in God just feels far away for you. Like it's really hard to get your hands on that kind of belief. Um, for others, um, you just haven't felt that. Maybe you used to feel it. Maybe you had a season in your life where you felt something like you would call like the presence of God, but maybe that feeling has been gone for a really long time, right? 
Or maybe like, you're not even sure you believe in God at all, so why would we even be having this conversation? I totally get that. Uh, maybe you look at your life and it just seems um, <laughs> like the circumstances of your life are not the place where you'd expect to find God. Maybe you just see a mess. Maybe you see a ruin. Maybe you see a desolation. Maybe you see a kind of barrenness that just makes it seem like God wouldn't want to be there. Or on the other side of things, maybe things are so put together that it feels like God doesn't really need to be part of the equation, right? Well, um, in some ways, like when we talk about circumstances in lives and places where you wouldn't expect to find God, uh, there's a Bible word for those lives and places. And the Bible word for lives and places where you wouldn't expect to find God, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of an old word, but it's cursed. Cursed is a Bible word for lives and places where you wouldn't expect to find God. Maybe it seems that the people have done something to eject God or to no longer be eligible for God, but cursed is a Bible word for people who would no longer expect to find God. And the interesting thing is the way that the Bible used that language to describe Jesus. Um, we could spend the rest of our years together talking about all the different angles and ways that you can unpack the mystery of what happened on the cross. But one of the ways of talking about the mystery of that act of atonement is to discover that God is in fact present in the most cursed circumstances. Uh, the writer of the letter of Galatians says it like this, Christ redeemed us from that self-defeating, cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. Do you remember that the scripture says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? This is uh, the writer from the New Testament calling back to ancient Old Testament words about what it means to hang on a cross or a tree. That's what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became a curse and at the same time dissolved the curse. And so if you look at your life and your life feels like it's not the kind of life, it's not the kind of place, you're not the kind of person, it's not the kind of circumstance where you'd expect to find God, if you fear that maybe you've done something to eject God, if you fear that like your, your, your circumstances are no longer eligible for the presence of God, I'm just telling you, like at the center of this story is God who has said, I will take cursed things and cursed people and even show up there. So if you can find the life of God there hanging on a cross, then you can believe, like you better believe that you could keep your eyes open for the life of God in your midst. That every day is like wooing you, inviting you, begging you to be present to the presence of God who's not looking down on you like your life, your place, your circumstance, your story is someplace where he doesn't want to be. Now, um, words are good. I said earlier I like words. Uh, but sometimes rituals are better. And we have one other uh, sort of ritual or practice uh, available to us as a community today. And I think it's especially potent for people who need to know in their body and their bones that God even shows up in cursed places and cursed stories because of what he's done in Jesus. And that ritual or practice is uh, the imposition of ashes. So uh, Ash Wednesday was a few days ago. We're a little late, I know, but we're usually late at Southland City Church. Um, and uh, we're gonna offer ashes if you'd like to have them. There's no pressure to have them imposed on your forehead. Um, but perhaps one of the virtues of this practice is like, if you feel like your life is barren wasteland, if you feel like it's cursed, like, good, put some ashes on and own it. 
Because even cursed lives in barren places are eligible for the presence of God. That's one of the points of the entire Jesus story. It's one of the things revealed in the cross. Even cursed lives in barren places are eligible for that loving, compassionate presence of God who calls us back to who we are. So if you think your life is somehow too frail or too much of a failure to be a place for God, I'd say, come receive the ashes with pride. (laughs) And say, yeah, we are frail, and sometimes we fail. And our lives may look like the kind of place where you wouldn't expect to find God, but the point of a God who died on a cross is that even cursed lives are eligible for that loving, compassionate presence of the one who holds everything together and keeps this universe spinning around. There's a writer named Barbara Brown Taylor who uh, wrote an essay on the liturgy of ashes. Through the liturgy, she was sort of wrestling with uh, not really loving this particular experience. And she writes this essay talking about how ashes felt like a barren place for her. Like, why would you, why would you want ashes when we're looking for God? And then she actually speaks of observing the events of 9-11, where uh, in the rubble and the ash, the soot of those buildings falling down, she watched rescue workers pulling bodies out. And something flipped for her in that moment where in the middle of all that ash, she saw this kind of heroic, divine, sacrificing way of being in the world. And and reflecting on that, she writes this in her essay. She says, the gospel of the day is not about the poverty of flesh so much as it is about the holiness of ashes. It was God who decided to breathe on them. Those cursed, barren ashes, it was God who decided to breathe on them after all. God who chose to bring them to life, and God who chooses to bring us to life. And so um, this will be sort of our final movement in our gathering today. I'll offer just a brief moment of reflection, and then when we're done reflecting, if you'd like, you'll be free to get up out of your seat and go to the same corners where communion was served, and one of our pastors will um, simply impose a cross of ashes on your forehead and remind you, from dust you came, and to dust you shall return. And perhaps in our spirits today, we can say, yep, And even here, even in this body and life, God is choosing to be present. And we will walk in that way of holiness this Lenten season. Uh, Side note, some of you are thinking, it'll be really embarrassing to have ashes on my forehead when it's not Ash Wednesday. Yep. If this is the first time you've been a little embarrassed being a part of Southland City Church, uh, just hang on. (laughs) I always say this, just tell people we're a little weird at Southland City Church, and then smile real big and own it, right? Um, that being said, let me just uh, lead us in a brief, quiet reflection, and then when I'm done, if you'd like, you're welcome to get up out of your seat and go to one of the tables to receive the ashes. Uh, if you want to uh, close your eyes, this will be sort of a form of prayer. If you want to put your feet flat on the floor, if that helps you sort of be present here now. And then I'll simply offer a prayer with some silences. God, I pray that we today in this living temple that you call the church would have some sense of God at the center of everything. This living, loving God, this sacred fire at the heart of the universe and the heart of our lives at the center of our stories. I pray we would trust that in your presence there is this calling back to who we are and that we would welcome it that in your presence there's compassion and we would open our hearts to it. 
that to be holy like you, to be perfect like you, is to live with an indiscriminate love that we would both receive and give. God, for anyone who feels like their life is barren or cursed or empty or dead, I pray these ashes today would be for us a way of owning it and then celebrating that even in the dead places you were there, even in cursed bodies and stories you are there, that there really is no such thing as a barren wasteland because you fill everything everywhere with your presence. And so though we are dust and to dust we shall return, in spite of that we know that you have breathed into this dust and made us alive. We pray that this Lenten season you would teach us to be present to your presence. We pray through Christ. Amen. So may you know that at the center of everything is God. At the center of your life and your story, your body and this sacred world is God. May you know that in the presence of God, we hear a voice who calls us back to who we are. May you know the compassion of God who hears the cries of the world. May you know the indiscriminate love of God that Jesus calls his perfection. May you know that though we are frail and though we fail, and though these bodies will go back to the ground, that we too are venues for the presence of God. And may this Lenten season, you grow in holiness as you wake up to that convicting, compassionate, loving God in our midst. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys.